0: With today being essentially the launch of our ministry year and the day of our ministry fair, I can't think of a better passage in God's providence for us to land on today than the text that we will be looking at together this morning, where we will see Jesus ministering in a most remarkable way to his disciples. In John's gospel... We have seen Jesus do some truly amazing things, have we not? Uh, From turning water into wine at a wedding, all the way to raising a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. And yet, in our passage this morning, we're going to see this mighty Jesus perform what is perhaps his most astonishing act to date an act that almost certainly left his, his disciples scratching their heads in amazement more than any other. And that act was washing his disciples' feet, washing his disciples' feet. This deed that we will witness this morning is remarkable for its lowliness. As we will see in the coming moments, washing the feet of another person was something that typically only the lowliest of slaves would do in this day. His deed of washing his disciples' feet is also remarkable because there was no necessity for it to be done. After all, the disciples were not suffering from some life threatening infection in their feet, meeting Jesus. To wash their feet to cleanse out that infection and thus save their lives. So there was no medical necessity for Jesus washing their feet in our passage today. And there was no moral necessity either for him washing their feet. There is nowhere in the Old Testament law or even in the rabbinic writings of the Jews of ancient history where foot washing was ever prescribed for God's people. So Jesus' deed in our passage today is as unnecessary as it is stunning. Jesus' deed in our passage today is also remarkable because of what it's going to point us to and point his disciples to, and that is the cross. And we will see that as the passage unfolds For us this morning, all things considered through this simple act of washing his disciples feet, Jesus will give us a most endearing glimpse of himself and show us the super abundant greatness of his good heart. And he'll also show us something important about how you and I should go about loving one another. Ultimately, in these verses that we're going to look at today, if you'll look at the copy of the notes that you have, there are six ways that Jesus is going to minister to his disciples. Six ways that Jesus ministers to his disciples on this, the eve of his crucifixion. And go ahead and fill in the blank if you're taking notes. Number one... The first way that he ministers to them is he loves them to the end. He loves them to the end. Observe what John says, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What precious words these are about the love of Jesus, right? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In speaking these words, John is reminding us that Jesus had already shown his disciples tremendous love over the previous three years up to this point. He had lived with them and he had poured his life into them. He had put up with their failures and their wrongheaded notions and their squabbles between themselves. He had taught them many things and showed them many marvels. If Jesus did not do what he is about to do in our passage this morning, the record would already show that these 12 men have never experienced a greater love than Jesus had shown them up to this point. And yet Jesus is now about to go deeper in showing love to his disciples. When John tells us that Jesus loved them to the end, part of the end that John is talking about is the final hours of his time with his disciples before he is arrested. In fact, John is so impressed with how Jesus went about loving his disciples and took care of them on this Thursday evening before his death that John devotes almost 25% of his gospel to simply recording all the things that Jesus did and said to them on this particular Thursday evening up until his arrest. In fact, you can draw a circle around all of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 and entitle it, How Jesus Loved Us to the End even though we know Jesus will go ever deeper in loving them through the cross in chapter 19, and then even after his resurrection in chapters 20 and 21. But right now, at this moment, standing in the shadow of the cross, Jesus' heart is already being torn apart with anguish. Later in this very evening, he will be sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed and arrested and tried and found guilty. And three hours after sunrise, on this very next morning, Friday morning, Jesus will be hoisted up upon a cross and his crucifixion will commence. As Jesus is seated here at this Passover table on this Thursday evening in John 13, he knows that by this time tomorrow, his lifeless body will be lying in a tomb. And yet, instead of being caught up in his own grief, Jesus thinks about his disciples and he pours himself into them. If anyone had an excuse to be detached and Distant. It was Jesus on this particular evening. And yet, already agonizing with forebodings over what lies ahead, Jesus literally looks at his disciples' feet and notices that their feet need to be washed. Are you kidding me? Jesus giving attention to such minutiae on the eve of his crucifixion is an astonishing demonstration of doting love. Many commentators point out that the Greek phrase at the end of verse 1 translated to the end could also be translated to the uttermost. So you can write down that as an alternative translation. Such language by John alerts us to the fact that Jesus didn't just love them to the end, but he loved them to the fullest extent imaginable. Just in chapters 13 through 17 alone, Jesus is gonna minister to their heads and to their hearts as he teaches them many things. But he starts here in this passage by ministering to their feet in the end, John wants us to know, amongst other things, that Jesus loved the disciples to the uttermost from their heads all the way down to their feet on this evening. So let's get the picture uh, firmly in our minds as we forge ahead. Someone obviously had prepared a room for Jesus and for his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal on this particular Thursday evening, someone had made sure that there was a table along with food set up for them. Having thought ahead to the needs of the guests, someone had placed in this room a kiosk of sorts containing a large pitcher of water and a water bowl or a water basin and a linen towel for foot washing. Yet apparently there was no servant present to wash everyone's feet. Jesus and the disciples would have entered the room and began their preparations for this Passover meal, and then eventually began to recline around the table, yet no one's feet had been washed and no one was volunteering to handle this task. And when you read, go ahead and write this reference down, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, you discover at least one of the reasons why the disciples were in no mood to wash each other's feet. In Luke twenty-two twenty-four, Luke tells us, and I quote, that a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest, unquote. And it seems they're having a dispute because they could not arrive at any agreement on the subject. Evidently, each person thought that he was the greatest in the kingdom, yet he couldn't get the other guys to agree with him. Go figure. So given the argument that they are having, it makes perfect sense why none of them would volunteer for this task of Washing the other's feet, because at least in their minds, to wash the feet of the others would have been regarded as an admission of inferiority. And no one on this evening is about to do that. So it was pride that held them back from this act of service. But Jesus will not let this act go unperformed on this evening. Which brings us to the second way that Jesus ministered to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Number two, he gets up and makes preparations to wash their feet. He gets up and makes preparations to wash their feet. Observe what John says in verses two through five. And during supper, and literally this reads, supper "...having come, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel... He girded himself about, then he poured water into the basin. Notice how detailed John is being here. John was clearly an eyewitness of this moment, and he wants us to see each step of what he and his fellow disciples witnessed on this occasion. Every eye in the room was on Jesus as he rose from the supper, and then took off and then laid aside his outer garments and then took a towel and then girded himself with that towel and then poured water into a large bowl. It's as if John is portraying the scene in slow motion, helping us to linger in this moment through his own vivid. Recollection of each step that Jesus took in preparation to wash his disciples' feet. What would have been so shocking to these disciples is that by stripping off his outer garments and girding himself with the towel, as one commentator says, Jesus was adopting the dress of a menial slave, Dress that was looked down upon in both Jewish and Gentile circles, unquote. So what Jesus had done thus far was stunning enough. But then Jesus does something even more remarkable. And this is the third way that Jesus ministered to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Number three, he actually washes their feet. He actually washes their feet. Observe what John says in the second part of verse 5. Jesus had poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. For a person of superior social rank to do this kind of thing for people of lesser social rank was unprecedented and astonishing. In all of ancient literature, there is not a single example anywhere of any person of superior rank washing the feet of people of lower social rank. Not a single example of that anywhere. More than that, as the commentator D.A. Carson says, even peers did not wash one another's feet. Some Jews, he says, even insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others and that this job should be reserved only for Gentile slaves. In this time period in history, washing the feet of another was not just a task reserved for slaves, but for the lowliest of slaves, meaning that there were some slaves who were actually above such a task. Yet Jesus here was willing to humble himself and render this lowly act of service to his disciples. And a good question for us to ask is, where did the wherewithal to do this come from? The Apostle John, I think, indicates two places. The first, obviously, was his love for his disciples. Back in verse 1, John says, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end, clearly tying Jesus' love for his disciples to this act that he is now performing in washing their feet. But there's a second reason that Jesus was willing to serve his disciples in this way. And that is because he was secure in his messianic identity. In fact, notice how John describes what was going on in Jesus' mind. He says in verse three, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper and ended up washing their feet. So obviously, Jesus was very secure in himself. He knew the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going, from God and to God. Jesus was very secure in his identity as the Son of God, to the point where he could lower himself freely here to serve the disciples without feeling that it threatened his messianic identity in some way. It takes a very secure person who has a very strong sense of who he is to do what Jesus does here in John 13, which means that Jesus is the most secure person in this room. The insecure people in the room are the disciples who had been arguing with each other over which of them is the greatest. The insecure people were the disciples who felt that washing the feet of their peers would have been a threat somehow to their own status. It's insecure people who are in rivalry with other people over which of them is to be considered greater. It is insecure people who are afraid to lower themselves to serve another person. It is secure people who have no qualms about lowering themselves beneath others and serving them. And Jesus obviously is very secure in himself, and in his messianic identity as the son of God. And this absolute security is a vital part of what gives him the wherewithal to humble himself and perform this lowly service for his disciples. So John says he begins washing the disciples' feet. And while doing so, he encounters One of the disciples who gives him some pushback, and this leads us to the fourth way that Jesus ministered to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Number four, let's word it this way, over Peter's objections, he persists in washing Peter's feet. Over Peter's objections, Jesus persists in washing Peter's feet. Observe what happens in verse 6. And so he came to Simon Peter. And all God's people said, "Uh uh-oh, right? And he, Peter, said to him, Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Obviously, Peter is extremely uncomfortable here. And it's not that he minded getting his feet washed. He just had a problem with Jesus being the one who's doing that. So he says to Jesus, do you wash my feet? If a servant had tried to wash Peter's feet, Peter would have had no trouble with that. If one of the other disciples had washed Peter's feet, he would have happily let them and probably pointed out any spots they were missing as they washed his feet. But Jesus washing his feet? No way. And so Peter utters his protest in the form of a question. Lord, do you wash my feet? Look at verse 7 to see Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. There's a lot going on here, Peter. There's a million things going on right now, and you'll have understanding of this hereafter. What Jesus says here should have been enough to tear down Peter's defenses, but it wasn't. Look at verse 8. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Literally, the Greek text has Peter saying, No, you shall never wash my feet into eternity. Obviously, this is more than Peter feeling just a little awkward and saying, Are you sure you want to do this, Jesus? This is a bold refusal from Peter that was designed to make it clear to Jesus that Peter will never allow him to wash his feet, ever. However long eternity is, that's how long Peter is saying it will be before he will ever allow Jesus to wash his feet. Imagine that you have someone over at your house and you offer to pour them a glass of tea, and they say to you, no, I will never take a glass of tea from you, not into all of eternity. What would you do? You'd be taken aback uh, for sure, right? And I doubt you would say, are you sure? Because I'm already up. I can pour the glass for you. No, you wouldn't do that. You would almost certainly be shocked and back off on the tea thing and know to never bring up Anything about tea again, right? But this is exactly the way that Peter is talking to Jesus here. And the reason Peter refuses so vehemently is because he has a high view of Jesus. And he's very uncomfortable with Jesus humbling himself to such a lowly extent to wash his feet. Well, thankfully, Jesus... Is not one to be discouraged when he has set his heart on loving someone. Jesus loves Peter too much to say, okay, have your way, Peter. Observe Jesus' response in the second part of verse 8, where John says, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Part of what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you cannot have a relationship with me. Or you have no destiny with me. I should point out here that Jesus is using the language of inheritance here, which means that we can paraphrase his words this way. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you will have no share, no part in the inheritance that belongs to my people in the kingdom. However you understand Jesus' words here, He is clearly making the stakes incredibly high, right? Which raises the question, why would Jesus speak to Peter in this way and raise the stakes like this? After all, it's just a simple foot washing. Yet Jesus is raising the stakes and telling Peter that if Peter won't let him wash his feet, then Peter will have no inheritance with Christ. Why does Jesus raise the stakes so high and speak to Peter in this way? I think there's two reasons that uh, commentators will point out as you study through this passage. First, Jesus washing Peter's feet is a manifestation of Jesus' person and his heart So for Peter to refuse this service from Jesus would be to reject the very heart of Jesus himself. But there's another reason that Jesus speaks of the stakes being so high here, and this is what points us to the cross. Let me say it this way. Jesus in this moment knows that if Peter refuses to let Christ be stripped of his garments, and humble himself and from that position of humiliation wash his feet, then Peter will never be able to accept what Christ is going to be doing for him at the cross on the very next day. Upon later reflection, Peter will realize that Jesus is basically saying to him here right now, Peter... If you are uncomfortable with letting me humble myself and from that position of humiliation wash your feet, then you will never be comfortable with how I am about to be humiliated on the cross in order to provide you the ultimate washing that you need. If you can't let me humble myself and wash your feet right now, then you will never be able to receive what I am about to do tomorrow. And if you can't receive that, then you have no part with me. Does this make sense? This is a hugely powerful moment between Jesus and Peter. And it reminds all of us that a vital part of being a Christian is getting over your discomfort with being a recipient of grace that comes to you from the humbling depths of to which Jesus was willing to descend for your salvation. If that's too offensive to your pride, to such an extent that you cannot receive that grace from Jesus, then Jesus says you can have no part with me. Peter will realize later that what Jesus is doing here in this moment is more than just a simple attempt at foot washing This is Jesus preparing Peter's heart for the cross. Peter doesn't realize this yet, but Jesus is basically saying to Peter, you had better get used to this real quick, Peter. I am stripping myself of my outer garments now and kneeling to the ground right now in order to wash you but you will soon see me do something far more humiliating than this, being stripped of my clothing and crucified and buried in the ground for your ultimate salvation. And your eternal well-being will depend on you receiving that from me. Well, Peter doesn't realize all this in the moment But Jesus has made it clear to Peter just from what he has said that unless he lets Jesus wash his feet, he can't have a part with Jesus. And that's enough for Peter to hear and understand right now. We all know that Peter is an impulsive all or nothing kind of man. So observe his complete reversal in verse nine. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter now goes to the other extreme. And let's not give him a hard time for doing this. Peter is saying to Jesus, wash not only my feet, Lord, but please wash these hands that pushed you away just a minute ago. Please wash this head This blockhead of mine that a minute ago was thinking that you should not be allowed to wash my feet. If having a part with you involves me letting you give me a washing from a place of humiliation, then give me a complete bath. Peter is actually, in my opinion, in a very good place. Right now. And Jesus does not rebuke him for what he has just said. Jesus simply assures him that, oh, Peter, you're already too clean for a bath. Amazing words of grace. Observe Jesus' response to Peter in verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you plural in the Greek, this is plural and you, you guys, he's now talking to all of the disciples here and you guys are clean, but not all of you. And who is the one who's not Judas. John adds this note in verse 11 saying for Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you don't need a bath. Otherwise, I would give you that right now. You and your fellow disciples are already bathed in a way that has left you completely cleaned. You just need your feet washed. My washing Of your feet, Peter, is a metaphor for the daily cleansing of my word. That my word provides you from the defilements of this world that you pick up as you walk through this world. And it also represents the application of the forgiveness of sins, applying that to your conscience as you follow me." The Apostle John was one of the men in this room who witnessed this exchange with Peter. And you can write this reference down in 1 John 1, 9. Jesus is talking to Christians or John is talking to Christians who have already experienced the washing of regeneration and justification, making them righteous in Christ. And John says to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Christians, we are bathed and we are cleansed before God and able now to always come into his presence But we still stumble and we still fall and we leave ourselves with a stained and troubled or guilty conscience. But by even as believers confessing our sins to God, John is promising us that the blood of Christ will be applied to our consciences so that we can walk in a way that is unencumbered by our sins. Our sins as believers have been erased from the record books of heaven. But our sins have not been erased from our conscience, which requires cleansing. As that forgiveness that has already been granted to us in Jesus is applied to our conscience, that we might experience the joy of pardon in Christ, and then walk in the freedom of the grace of Christ. As for what is happening here in John 13, Jesus ends up washing Peter's feet and all the other disciples' feet, and then Jesus sits back down and he gives the disciples some instruction. And this brings us to the fifth way that Jesus ministers to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Number five, he urges them to wash each other's feet just as he had done. He urges them to wash each other's feet just as he had done. Observe what happens in verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Imagine how silent the room was as Jesus washed their feet and then he gets resituated at the table and asks, do you know what I have done to you? And it's evident the disciples gave no answer because there's no answer recorded. There was no doubt a long pause where no one knew what to answer. And so Jesus breaks the silence and explains to his disciples, what he has just done. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, we could paraphrase this, the ultimate Lord and the ultimate teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus here is affirming their high view of him and tells them that they are right to think of him as their teacher and their Lord, And then he makes his point, basically saying, if I, whom you look up to as the ultimate teacher and the ultimate Lord, was willing to lower myself and wash your feet, then you should be willing to lower yourselves and do the same thing for each other. He's saying, I have just showed you how to live. By the way, think about Jesus' method of discipleship here where he leads his disciples by example first, followed by giving them verbal instruction. Jesus could have noticed that no one's feet were being washed and and then scolded his disciples and lectured them about foot washing and commanded one of them to get up and to do it. But that would not have been nearly as powerful as what he actually does in this story, right? He actually washed each of their feet in front of everyone else. And then he gave them verbal instruction. That's leadership. That's true discipleship. For by letting them see him performing this task himself, Jesus forever altered the way these disciples thought about foot washing. Right? Formerly, they thought of foot washing as a lowly task fit only for the lowest slaves and even beneath them to ever do for anyone. But now, having seen Jesus do this, the ministry of foot washing has just undergone a massive elevation and exaltation in their eyes. Foot washing has never looked so glorious as it does to them right now, Right? And Jesus washing their feet would have elevated their view of themselves and their comrades as well. That Jesus would treat them all as fitting recipients of his ministry in this way. How do you ever get over the wonder of this? If you're one of the disciples and you actually experience this, I'm sure these disciples never got over the fact that God came down to earth and God walked among us. And when God walked among us, he bowed before us and washed our feet on a Thursday night. (laughs) What gratuitous love is this. And how can one experience this kind of love and not be forever transformed by it? What Jesus does in our passage today provides both an example and a wellspring from which the disciples can draw as they serve one another the way Jesus did in the days ahead. For example, Peter himself watched Jesus wash his own feet, but Peter also watched Jesus Wash John's feet and then wash Andrew's feet and then wash Philip's feet and so on. So in this passage, Jesus is saying to Peter, for example, Peter, as I washed your feet, so you are to wash your brother's feet. But he's also saying to Peter, Peter, as you just saw me wash John's feet That's how you are to wash John's feet also. Love John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and all the others, not just as you have seen me love you, but love them the way you've just seen me love them just now. In verse 16, Jesus says to them all, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than, Than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus' point here is that his disciples all know that he is greater than them and that they are less than him, infinitely less than he is. So none of them should view themselves ever as being above washing each other's feet just as Jesus had done for them. From this day forward, for them to ever refuse to bow low and wash the other's feet would be tantamount to pretending that they are somehow greater than Jesus, who obviously didn't feel that washing feet was beneath him. There's one final way that Jesus ministers to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, Number six, he promises them blessedness if they will do as he has done. He promises them blessedness if they do as he has done. How many of you want to be blessed? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, then you'll love this verse because it'll help you to know how you can experience blessedness. Listen to what Jesus promises in verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you know them. What's it say? You're blessed if you do them. Jesus here is seeking to demonstrate for his disciples and us the path of blessedness or true enviable happiness and fulfillment in life that we would have never otherwise considered. From his words here, we learn that blessedness isn't found simply in the knowing. There's a lot of people who know an awful lot who are miserable. True blessedness is found in doing what we know. Jesus is saying here, if you know these things that I've just been talking to you about regarding humbling yourself and serving each other, you are blessed if you do them, if you act on what you now know. We naturally tend to think that blessedness is found in being served and catered to, right? That's my default setting, that somehow I will be most happy when I'm being served and catered to. If I can somehow get the rest of the world to cooperate with this and I can go throughout each day and everyone caters to me, well, then I will be blessed. That's the life. But Jesus shows us that blessedness comes through serving others. We naturally tend to think that blessedness is found in being greater than others. But Jesus is showing us that blessedness is found in the low places where we stoop low to serve someone else from a position of humility. We tend to think that blessedness is found in winning an argument or having our pride protected But Jesus shows us here that blessedness is found on the path of humility. We tend to think that blessedness comes when we prevail over others that we are in rivalry with. But Jesus is teaching us here that we experience genuine blessedness when we give up the petty competitions and stoop to serve others instead and thereby mirror the gospel love of Jesus to others. Jesus says, you live this way, and you do this, you will be blessed. And now we realize what Jesus has been up to throughout the length of this passage. What turned, or what originally seemed to be just a simple foot-washing, is providing these disciples the profoundest of lessons on life, even pointing them to the cross and preparing them for it. This passage that we've looked at today is a delightful passage for me to preach to this congregation, partly because I, I have to tell you, I cannot read this passage without thinking of the ways that so many of you already follow the example of Jesus so beautifully in the way that you serve one another with such beautiful effect. There's a new convert that my wife and I were talking with recently who was sharing with us the various ways that the people of Cornerstone have loved her and sent her Cards and gifts and text and even visited her during her recent medical health challenges. This young lady has lived over 30 years of her life outside the church until her conversion a few months ago. And after receiving yet another expression of love from yet someone else in this church, she said, who are you? Are these people who are loving me in this way? And she also said to us, how did I live the first 30 years of my life outside the church? She also said to us that she is excited about now being in the church and being able to show the love of Jesus to others in the church the same way that she has experienced from so many of you. On another front, just last week, I got a message from a man in this church whose family is grieving the loss of a precious loved one. And he was praising God together with his family for their cornerstone family, whom the Lord has brought alongside of them to journey with them through their trials. I've attended two memorial services this past week and was absolutely in awe watching so many brothers and sisters serving with such joy. I hear wonderful things about so many of you, and I see the beauty of Jesus in you which leaves me praising God for you and for the countless ways that you already live out the very ethic that Jesus puts on display in this passage this morning. If you're new with us here at Cornerstone and maybe you don't know a lot that's going on, you may be asking, where does such love come from? And the short answer is that it all comes from Jesus and from the radical way that Jesus loves us in the gospel. It is his radical love that we have experienced that now gives rise to our love, not only for him, but also for others. In fact, talk about radical love. Consider Just very briefly, the radical love that Jesus shows to Peter in our passage this morning. In order for Peter to have an inheritance with Jesus in his kingdom, Peter didn't need to perform some task or jump through certain hoops or achieve some high level of spirituality or become perfect after Peter refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet, Jesus would not take no for an answer. Jesus simply says to Peter, if you won't let me wash your feet, you can have no part with me. In other words, he's saying to word that positively, he's saying, Peter, all you have to do, all you have to do here, is let me wash your feet and you can have part with me. That's the deal that Jesus makes with Peter. And it's crazy. Think about it. Jesus makes Peter having a part with him depend not on anything that Peter does, but simply on Peter letting Jesus do something for him. And that is Wash his feet. And that's the deal that Jesus offers to you this morning. He asks nothing from you. You have nothing to give to him of yourself. He simply asks of you that you allow him to wash you from his position of humiliation upon a cross that you let him wash you with his own blood that was shed at the cross. Will you let him do that? I hope that you will. And if you do let him do that, or if you have allowed him to do that, Will you join with us here at Cornerstone and seek to mirror his love to others and seek to love them in the way that Christ has loved you? Will you love your brothers and sisters and serve them because they are precious ones for whom he laid down his life and died? If this is your desire, then I invite you to join us here At Cornerstone, our purpose as a church is helping people to journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we seek to do that here through our Sunday morning services. And also through our care group ministry that we ask all of our members to be a part of. And we seek to do that through the various weekly enrichment ministries that we make available to you here at Cornerstone, which is, as you see on this flyer that is at your seat, our equipping school ministry that meets on Sunday mornings starting next Sunday. I invite you to join us at 930 for 45 minutes of practical instruction for you and for your children that will take place before our morning service. Beyond our equipping school on Sunday mornings, there is also our man forum on Tuesday mornings and our men's and women's Bible studies and our Awana ministry for children and our youth ministry and our college and career ministry. Wherever you are in your journey, we would love for the opportunity to minister to you and give you opportunities to serve and to minister as well, so that together we might experience the heart of Christ through each other and actually experience the blessedness that Jesus promises us in our passage today. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us this ministry year to enter deeply into the rich blessedness that the good heart of Jesus longs for us to experience together. Lord God, we're so thankful for this staggering moment that takes place here in John 13. There was a day when God walked the earth among men and women. And there was a Thursday night when God washed people's feet. What is not to love about a God like you? What is not to love about a Savior like Jesus, who was willing to endure the ultimate humiliation of the cross so that from that position he can love us and give us the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation that we needed and to make us right with you forever. What wretched wickedness it is to say no to such love. And I ask, Lord, that you would melt every heart in this room, including my own, that we would surrender to this love. That we would let you love us as you desire and not push you away. That we would be transformed by the ever deepening experiences of your radical, crazy love for us. That we would be transformed by it, Lord, and then seek to manifest this very love to others as we serve in a spirit of joy over what we've experienced in you, Lord Jesus. May you help each of us this ministry year, Lord, to be the hands and the feet and to manifest the heart of Jesus as we have seen it displayed in this passage and as we will go on to see it displayed at the cross. We just dedicate, Lord, and surrender ourselves fully to you And to your great love. And we do so. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people said.